Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, we were having a quick chat here about uh, the very wonderful segue that we had to this session uh, by Annie Mary and Amy. It was a, a, a fabulous way to begin the conference. So um, I feel like this is wonderful to go from that conversation <clears throat> to this conversation and to be talking about democracy, participation and enterprise. And we have three very wonderful and interesting speakers today. Uh, we've got Liz Bassett, uh, who's talking about sociocracy, sociocracy in action at Narara Village, Eco Village. And we've got Sonia uh, Randawa, I can't, I'm sorry, Sonia. <laughs> um, Randawa. Randawa, and talking about democracy reimagined, experiments in deliberation around the world. And, uh, and then we have our own, um, when I say our own from University of Newcastle, a colleague, Sarah Motta, who's talking about uh, democracy motherwise. So well, I'm, I'm so looking forward to hearing from all of you. Um, for those of you that are in our audience, please uh, keep your mute buttons on and, um, and feel free in terms of video uh, to have it on or off as it pleases you. If you have questions, pop them into the chat. And if you have questions that you wish to direct to somebody in particular, just pop that in the chat as well. Um, so off we go. I think Liz has got, uh, uh, she's going to speak for 15 to 20 minutes and, um, and same with Sonia and Sarah, and then we'll have some Q&A at the end. And it's a lovely size group. We've got 20 in the room. Um, so looking forward to, to a great uh, session and some interesting discussion afterwards. Thank you. Okay. Um, now, I'm sharing my screen. Can you see the screen properly? Okay. So, hello, everybody. Um, I'm just going to now set this up so that it's I can see what's going on. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners and caretakers of the land on which we all are currently and, um, and acknowledging, um, paying your respects to elders past, present and future, and also to acknowledge that the land was never ceded. This uh, presentation, which somebody has uh, optimistically said will be 15 to 20 minutes, so I think I'm going to end up speaking quite quickly, is Sociocracy in Action at Marara Eco Village. Um, I've got quite a few slides. Unfortunately, some of them are quite wordy, but uh, we can make them all available later if you want to. Uh, I'm going to just start by very quickly uh, introducing the idea of sociocracy. Then I'm going to introduce the Eco Village. And then I'm going to just talk about how those two uh, things correspond to each other. And here I'm a little bit nervous. So we'll see how we go. Um, sociocracy is a set of principles and practices for shared decision-making in organisations. And they have a number of different elements. And here are some of them. Distributed power. Those people who do the work make the decisions. And the way that works is that groups have specific aims and they have authority to act within those aims, which we call domains. There's also equivalence which is an important feature in which people work together in circles and they have equal power. Uh, and one way to do that is through the use of rounds where people take turns speaking, they do not interrupt each other and it gives them a chance 
to listen. And it gives a chance for people who uh, don't like competitive speaking to be heard. Um, and also all people in the circle that makes the decisions are responsible for those decisions. Another feature is transparency, which requires open communication. And structurally in sociocracy, there's something called double linking uh, in which uh, if you have a parent circle with a child circle, two people sit on both of those circles. That might not make a lot of sense to you, but it works quite a lot. Uh, sociocracy is a bit like a combination of um, Quaker and cybernetics. It's quite interesting. Um, and then there is uh, consent decision-making. And this is as opposed to consensus and as opposed to democracy. Democracy says 51% is fine, even if 49% say no. Uh, consensus says everybody's got to totally agree. This says consent has a much lower bar uh, it does want everybody in the room to agree, but it, um, it has there's a bit of a slogan in sociocracy called good enough for now, safe enough to try. Can you live with it for now? Um, uh, we don't expect perfection, but we do seek perfectibility. So that leads to the last element there, which is continuous learning and feedback and review. It's iterative. We see it as an iterative process as you develop policies and make decisions and move forward in your project, you constantly do feedback, review and improvement as part of the process. Right, well, that was uh, pretty quick. And now I'm just going to quickly introduce Nurara Eco Village, which is a cooperative. Excuse me. Uh, Nurara Eco Village is a cooperative on the New South Wales Central Coast, approximately 150 individuals and we're getting together and building a intentional community from scratch. So what we have is an aim. And our aim, if you can see it there, is kind of comprehensively big and enormous. It's to research, design, build, stylish, intergenerational, friendly, demonstration, eco-village, blending principles of ecological and social sustainability, good health, business, well-being, caring, and evolution. And this is, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's very, very large. Um, we have no spiritual leader or spiritual sort of uh, ethos uh, that's each to their own, uh, but we are united around this aim, uh, quite genuinely. Um, and the development has been entirely self-funded by members and mostly volunteer-driven. It's gone on for several years. Let's have a quick look at the timeline. Um, the, the village is on a beautiful site. This is an old photograph of it, um, uh, which includes dam, floodplain, forest, um, uh, rural lots, plus in the um, heavy marked white area there, that's where the village is being built. As you can see from this photograph, there was quite a number of existing buildings on the site when, um, when the car bought it. Uh, it was an old horticultural research institute, so it has um, an administrative building, a hall, uh, labs, uh, lots of greenhouses and other useful infrastructure, as well as um, the dam. So the land was purchased in 2012. Uh, then we went through a lot of process 
that uh, enabled us to do a subdivision of the first stage of the development, which was completed in about 2018. Um, so since then, about 22 houses or 20 houses, because there are two there already, have been constructed and are now occupied. There are also quite a number of others that are under construction. And there's also something called a cluster unit of 18, like a townhouse development, 18 units that will soon be occupied as well. Uh, so what this sort of tells you is that we planned this for many, many years before people even could live on the site. Uh, so what we were doing was building a community while we were preparing the infrastructure and the land for uh, a village to come and live there. Um, and now we're in that process of converting into an actual place where people live. Um, so what holds us together? Well, shared purpose and shared work. The village members participate and continue to do so in the design, planning, ongoing management of the village. We have a mix of paid contractors, consultants, external consultants and volunteers. And we have relied therefore on maintaining very high levels of engagement, trust and enthusiasm among volunteers, as well as a willingness to lay out quite a lot of money because it is entirely self-funded. Um, so that's just a very quick intro to the village. Um, so how do we compare in these uh, elements of sociocracy that I introduced before? Distributed power, equivalence, transparency, consent decision-making and continuous learning. So let's start by looking at distributed power. Uh, we have an organization structure that consists of the current board and five teams. Each, or each team is responsible for their part of the aim of the village, which you remember is very, very broad, big aim. So we've divided this into, into these five different teams. They are community business support team, because we would like to have an eco economic um, capacity as well, a land team, facilities, infrastructure projects, and village services. Uh, and each one of those groups off, uh, operates as a circle. So they have that circle infrastructure. They have an area of authority. They have their domain within which they operate. And they're also double linked to the steering circle. The steering circle is also structurally a general circle. And this allows everybody to know what everyone else is doing. So double linking to repeat is, I didn't really make it clear the first time, but double linking is where you have two people on both of the circles. So there are two people from the board on the steering circle, two people from community on the steering circle. And this allow, and those people are full members of both of those circles. And this allows for very clear uh, communication between circles. And each of those big circle teams, uh, including the board, has their own working groups. They have working groups that do a whole range of different actual work um, and make additional policies. So this is just you know, the inside of our organization chart. It just keeps flowering outwards. We call it the flower diagram. Um, and so to the next um, element, uh, equivalence. And this one is uh, all voices heard. And this is really within the circle. So it's more to do with meeting practices. Uh, we make decisions in circles. This is largely true. Um, 
circles have facilitators. So we routinely have a facilitator and a secretary in every meeting and we use rounds. In other words, we take turns speaking and everybody shuts up while someone else is speaking. And I did have to put it back and say that sometimes we do. Uh, and that, that certainly happens often enough. But it's, it's a strong principle and ethos in the village. So anyone says, oh, we need a round. Everyone goes, oh, okay, we'll be good now. Um, okay, so the thing about uh, rounds uh, and this equivalence is it requires a willingness to listen and it also requires a willingness to speak. Now, speaking is more of a challenge for some people than others, especially in large groups. So every now and then we do get a bit of feedback, should we say, from people who, who are not comfortable with the sort of level of uh, courage, persistence required to sometimes speak out in a large group, especially if what they're saying is, I don't agree with what you're talking about. So that's, that's an ongoing um, issue that may uh, be addressed with, with more practice because sociocracy, it certainly gets better with practice. Um, okay, so the next uh, element is transparency. Uh, this is about, you know, information. You need, everybody needs to get, have all the information that is required. Um, and this requires three elements. So uh, in my opinion, one of them is infrastructure. You need material things to communicate, um, whether it's, um, a notice board and folders that live in the lobby that have all the minutes and you can always go and see them or whatever. In our case, of course, our infrastructure is online. Um, I say, of course, but it's just because it's so normal these days. So we have an online um, infrastructure and the other, the other two elements required are time because communicating like this is a real cost. You have to resource it, and it resources with volunteers, largely by time. In a paid organisation, you'd need to actually pay for people to do it. So you'd have to add that as a genuine cost. Um, and thirdly, you need willingness. Some people, they just don't want to tell everybody what they're doing. <laughs> it's like they, they might say it, they think it's a waste of time, but they actually really just, you know, they don't, they don't care enough to want to do it. Um, it does happen sometimes as well. But we do have pretty good communication structure in place at the village. Um, first of all, anyone can quite easily discover who is on which circles. So we've got our org chart, which we're working on making that a bit more public, what's going on, who's in working groups. But you can easily find that out just by asking people. Um, you can also find out what they're talking about and what their budgets are, because all of that stuff is on the wiki. We have a members wiki, which is a collaborative online working space. Um, meeting notes are visible, uh, some documents are still there, and, um, uh, and, and you can comment, and you can do inline comments, and you can make all sorts of things happening on the, on the wiki. Um, and then we've also got uh, monthly short written reports from many circles, and these are on the wiki, and there's so much going on all the time that that monthly report, where people are literally doing a two-sentence report, uh, and or even longer, and they're linked to minutes on the wiki as well. And they can sometimes go to two or 3,000 words. Just all of these reports is quite exciting. You can find out what's going on. Uh, we also have a proper financial report with accountants every month. Uh, we have a weekly e-newsletter. And we've recently set up a communication app called Slack, which you might be aware of. And this allows people to 
to have different conversations in a range of different channels. So it's not all work by any means. Uh, if people want to request something, they can just put it out and say, go to the shop, someone buy me peanut butter. Uh, work to do, we need to see, you know, weed over here, this needs to be done this week. Appreciations is one of the most popular channels where people say nice things about each other. So that's very nice. Um, and then we have a monthly members meeting and we get oral reports from certain uh, team leaders and people like that with the opportunity for question and answer. So there's quite a lot of that. Um, not, yep, yeah, uh, quite a lot of that. Okay. So the, uh, the next two elements of sociocracy are consent decision-making and continuous learning and evolution. So we're doing both of these. We're getting better at it. We're generally okay in practice. Uh, decisions are made and because of the method of making them, they're generally supported as well. Um, we do need to do a little bit more work on how we manage our meetings to um, uh, to, to learn how to work with objections to improve proposals. A proposal is something to say, let's make a decision. Here's a, here's a good idea, let's do this. Okay, so then, then you have a process where you object uh, if you want to, um, if you see any issues with it. Uh, but we can work on that. And then we have continuous learning and evolution, which is, uh, we are doing, we're generally getting, a, a, we're generally okay at it and we do need to practice a lot and get better at it. And you know, there, there are some groups within the um, eco-village, uh, in particular the Steering Circle, which has had a lot of experience with sociocracy and they apparently have great meetings. So <clears throat> I really need to um, start uh, fishbowling again because you can go and watch these meetings if you want to of the Steering Circle and the board meetings. Uh, I forgot to mention that. So um, Yes, yeah, so some people are, had a lot more practice than others, and uh, so they're getting really good at it. And um, so continual improvement in the way that we do it, but also in the decisions that we make and the policies. Um, now I'll just uh, look at the next slide. Now this is, you can see is a lot of text and I'm not going to read it all out. So if you want to, you can either get the um, PowerPoint later or uh, do a quick screenshot, which is what I tend to do when I'm in Zoom meetings. Um, one of the things we do uh, is we have, um, because we live in the real world, the real world doesn't operate with sociocracy, but it does have certain laws in the case of co-ops required uh, a, a democratic process. So how do we align our sociocratic process with a democratic one as outlined in the law? Well, we basically have two general meetings. So we have the first one uh, sometime earlier. We've been doing it about a month earlier and maybe we're now going to go further back in time, like six weeks or eight weeks earlier. And we have a sociocratic election process, which is a consent election process, not a voting one. Um, and the aim of that process is to have, is to come out of it with the same number of people as there are vacancies on the board. Um, and this is something that we tweak every year because it's kind of enormous. We, we just recently did one and it was, uh, there were about 75 people on a Zoom meeting um, and we were doing consent rounds. So it, yeah, th there are things that uh, are of issues there, but basically this has resulted now in every single year, we've come out of this process with the same number of nominees as we do vacancies on the board, which means that in the next 
real legal AGM, there's no need for an election because we just move those people directly into the position. So that is like most things a work in progress, um, but uh, sociocracy I'm just pointing out here is not democracy and it also allows any method as long as it's agreed and periodically reviewed sociocratically. So if we sociocratically decided that we'll do a democratic election, for instance, for our AGM, then we could certainly do that and it wouldn't be inconsistent with sociocracy. Um, so, and here's my, uh, my last word here, just from my experience of uh, this village, is that genuine empowerment in the context of a shared purpose means people know their energy can make a difference in an area that is important to them. Shared purpose, empowerment, people know they can make a difference. Bingo, you have massive amount of motivation. And I've seen this at the village. It's just extraordinary amount of giving among the people from the village. Perfectly ordinary bunch of middle-class people. And we are just like throwing ourselves at this project in a way I've never seen, um, you know, with such large numbers of people. Um, so I do put a lot of that down to the, it, to, to the groundwork that's done by uh, sociocratic practices. And of course, also that whole decision-making structure. And uh, so that's, I don't know if that was 15 or 20 minutes, uh, but I did it very fast, didn't I? And uh, just a quick reference, and that is um, from a group called Sociocracy for All, which I recommend to everybody. And there was one image from there, but they also, um, they're a source of a lot of fabulous resources about sociocracy. Sonia Randawa, Democracy Reimagined, Experiments in Deliberation Around the World. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I am on the lands of the Wurrung language group of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, land which was never ceded, um, that I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land past, present and emerging um, and pay my respects to them. Um, I'd also um, really like to thank Liz. That's a, it's, I really love learning more about the sociocratic processes because it really ties in with what we're trying to do, I think, at Coalition of Everyone, where we're trying to build a politics of hope and disrupt the existing politics of fear. We think that the more people get involved in genuinely democratic and deliberative processes, the more empowered they'll feel and the more that they will take responsibility for our democracy and our, in the broadest sense of the word, rather than just the sense of the word of it being elections. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about today. So I'm with um, an organization called Coalition of Everyone, which is fairly new, oops, sorry, um, really. It started about a year ago now. We've had probably getting on towards 25 events in that year, which were a mixture of discussions and mock citizens assemblies and we're having our first real citizens assembly next weekend so that's going to be really exciting and that's in Moreland. Um, I'm also with an organization called the Sortition Foundation which helps to run it's also a non-profit that helps to run selection processes for citizens assemblies which I'll be talking about quite a bit here and with Karen who I think is still on this call um, I am one of the co-conveners of the Nina's Democracy and Governance Hub. Um, 
so I'm going to be focusing on citizens' assemblies, but I will be um, talking a little bit about how they fit into a broader um, revi democratic revival, how we need to rejuvenate our democratic systems, and that shouldn't be limited to citizens' assemblies, although that's the part of the puzzle that I am most interested in personally. Um, so why would we want to do democracy differently? Um, I love the way that this slide shows how um, banal our current politics is in some ways. But, and also the real horse, nature, horse race nature of party politics. Party politics emphasizes divisiveness. It emphasizes how bad other people are rather than trying to come to the best decisions for the community rather than putting forward positive ideas for change and being able in some ways to hold politicians accountable for those um I, amy saying about the ability to recall our politicians which we don't have in australia um it means that we're politics is to a large extent obviously not for everyone but to a large extent it's limited to a tick on a box, well, a number in boxes once every few years for council, um, state and federal elections. Um, people are often feel very removed from their politicians, particularly the ones at federal government level, but even at council or at state government level. And there are a lot of problems with the process itself, which I'm going to go into in a minute. Um, we think that there are better ways of doing democracy and they have been shown um, around the world to be successful in helping to bridge that divisiveness and also to try and build greater legitimacy. Um, I've just been listening before we started um, this morning to a podcast about the US elections and that five day waiting period. Um, it was done, it was a Guardian long read I think with people who were talking from both sides of either the Biden camp or the Trump camp. And what was clear was the distance between them and the difficulty that they have in talking over that divide. Um, because partly those divides are, there is a political benefit to the parties in emphasizing those differences and increasing that divisiveness. Um, citizens assemblies turn all of that onto its head in some ways. The other problem, reason why I think that we really need to be looking at different ways of doing democracy is that we're seeing an increasing number of um, surveys by, this one's by a group called Statista, but Freedom House do their annual Freedom House survey about the decline of democracy. And I, the, there are, the number of full democracies seems to be um, falling, but also the individual measures of um, democracy as well, things like um, freedom of the media, um, public participation. Um, and one fairly worrying um, statistic that came um, back recently from Europe was that a majority of young people, a narrow majority of young people, um, believe that in the context of the climate crisis, that authoritarian um, states are better at handling the climate crisis than um, elected democracies are, than democracies are. And I think that the um, lack of trust in democratic systems is, and that also the concurrent 
um, sort of fascination with authoritarian systems is one that's quite worrying. And I think that it's a trend we're going to see on the rise unless we can put forward alternatives that people can feel connected to for um, the electoral democracy that dominates at the moment. Um, the other thing is whether or not democracy is actually fit for purpose. As everyone on this call is undoubtedly aware, we are facing multiple crises. There's the climate crises, the ecological crises, um, and coronavirus is probably just a symptom rather than um, uh, of those deeper crises as well. But it's not just um, that we're facing these really complex but not intractable problems. It's also that the majority of people in Australia, for example, but there's been surveys around the world that um, are showing this, um, particularly in the last couple of years, believe that governments should be taking um, action on the climate crisis. This is um, statistics from the Australia Institute, um, the bushfires of last summer, um, that showed that even before that, Australia should be far more active in taking either a leadership role or at least contributing to action on the climate crisis. Um, and those statistics have gone up since then. And yet we saw, we continue to see what's been happening. The idea of a gas led recovery to the Corona crisis, for example, it, I, I mean, I know that everybody on this call shares my um, horror and concern that that's considered a way forward. Um, and if government and the elected politicians are not able to make the tough decisions that we really need and to lead the country in taking, making those decisions and in show, showing the leadership that is required at a time of crisis like this, then we need to ask, is it fit for purpose? And how do we make government, how we, do we build institutions that are fit for purpose? I think that part of the problem is reflected in these um, images here, which show the difference between, and this is from the UK, I don't have a similar nice graph for Australia, I'm afraid. Um, but in the UK, the this on the, um, sorry, I'm so bad with left and right. On the left, you've got the United Kingdom, um, the general population and what it looks like. So um, fairly evenly split between men and women, a um, sort of stack going up towards um, old age and that. Um, only 20% of people are university educated, 7% privately educated. And then you compare that with the people that actually get into parliament. Um, very much fewer young people there. They are predominantly between 60 and 69. You can see the gender disparity there. 90% compared to 20% of university graduates, 33% as opposed to 7% privately educated and a million pounds median wealth of members of cabinet. I think it just, um, when we talk about cognitive diversity and the real importance of people having a wide diversity of lived experiences to be able to inform decisions in um, especially complex decisions, um, and the, the ways in which that makes decision-making better, we can see that we're lacking that cognitive diversity in elected representatives. And I think it is marginally better in Australia, but marginally. Um, we, and I think that, that this is partly why 
we have the issues that we have, along with, of course, the issues to do with the amount of money that it takes to run a political campaign and who that means that politicians are beholden to. Um, I think it was last, late last year that Greenpeace released the video which shows the connections between mining companies um, and po politicians, both from Labour and um, from the coalition. And if you haven't seen it, it's really well worth taking a look at. Um, and there are, re there are structural reasons for that um, because again, of the cost of um, running a political campaign, not just in terms of the cost of the materials that you're producing and things like that, but the cost in terms of time single mums are a lot less likely to be able to run a political campaign. Women are less likely to run a political campaign just because of the emotional cost uh, of that and this, often the sexualized targeting that happens to women candidates. So there are lots of different ways in which that cost can be calculated and which discourage people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people who are women, people from um, ethnic minorities, from um, standing. Um, so one of the things that when you're looking at alternatives and the ways in which to get a diverse and possibly representative sample of people in a room for making a decision, I think it's this um, table shows quite clearly the differences um, between the ways of choosing of sortition and election in particular. Um, there's also nomination and co-option and certification, but I'm really interested here in looking at the differences between sortition and election. Um, so sortition is the process of randomly choosing a representative sample of people. So a, a graph that would look more like the one on the left than the one on the right, basically. And you, this, the graph obviously just represents um, gender and age, but you can also include other demographic criteria um, such as um, educational background, um, level of education, um, geography, and other things as well. Um, so if we look at the, um, in terms of the, in particular, things like the legitimacy and origin and direction. So what that means is, who is it that gives you the, is it a bottom up process or is it a horizontal process or a top down process? So with sortition, it doesn't matter what your background is. You have an equal chance of being chosen to be a member of the legislature or a um, local council or the, or the decision-making body um, as your neighbor or as somebody who's richer or somebody who's poorer. Um, it doesn't matter on your geography or anything like that. Um, so it's it the the legitimacy direction is horizontal, it and impersonal. You're not standing for anything. You don't get chosen because of your personal characteristics. You get chosen according to a representative sample. Um, it encourages humility. You are no better than the people who didn't get chosen because it was a lottery and it was by chance. Whereas in an election, to some extent, it could be responsibility, but you are placed above the electorate. You have been chosen by the electorate. Um, there is therefore radical equality at work in the process of sortition. It's radically impartial. It's radically representative. There is no competence test for sortition, but, and I think this is really important to um, 
emphasize there is no competence test for elections either. The best people do not get elected. Um, it's often, um, and we've just seen a really large election um, not uh, on the other side of the world, which kind of, um, to me, confirms that as well. I, I'm not saying that I would have preferred a different outcome, but it was certainly, um, if we look at the range of candidates that there were, it was a very small sample of candidates, even if you take into account um, all of the candidates that stood, for example, the democratic leadership position. Um, so the second stage in a citizens assembly, first of all, you're picking the sample of people through a random selection, a lottery process. Um, and then there's the stage of deliberation, which I think is um, Liz's way of talking about what happens in the sociocratic circle really um, is the same sort of thing that we're tapping into in deliberative processes, where there's a facilitator who works to make sure that all voices are heard and given um, an equal chance to participate. It comes to a, an outcome which, it says here a consensual outcome, but often it, the question that's posed is, what can you live with? Um, what, what is it that, you'll, that it will, you would be able to compromise on and agree upon as being an outcome? Um, so these are the, this is another way of looking at that diagram. You start off with the random selection. You have your citizens assembly, which is informed by an expert panel and processes of deliberation. And what you end up with is not public opinion, like you get with opinion polls, but public judgment, which is considered and thought out and talked through over several hours at the very least, if not days. Um, the influence of a citizens assembly is really important to, um, to improving this um, faith in demo democratic processes in some ways and improving our understanding of democracy. Um, some really su successful citizens assemblies have been taking place in Ireland. They're currently doing one on gender equality. This one here was on marriage equality, um, which of course was passed by um, the a referendum in Ireland. Um, but it started off life as, as part of a citizens assembly. The um, Irish referendum on abortion was also made possible through a citizens assembly process to begin with. The politicians didn't really have the courage or the belief in the desire for change that was demonstrated in a citizens assembly. By contrast, we've had some um, bad examples here in Australia, in particular the South Australian assembly. It was a citizens jury, which is fundamentally the same process um, on nuclear waste where the politicians basically ignored what the citizens juries um, decided upon. And that controversy is still going on today. Um, so right from the outset, defining the influence of a citizens assembly or citizens jury process is really critical to its success. Um, I don't know how long I've been talking now, uh, coming to the end of my time, which is good because this is my second last slide. Um, so other democratic innovations that I think are also worth um, just mentioning here and which um, Coalition of Everyone is really excited about and getting involved in as well. Um, participatory budgeting, um, uh, the sort of larger scale example of participatory budgeting to date has been in Porto Alegre, where the um, municipality engages 10,000 people in a bottom-up process of deciding on the municipal budget or a section of the municipal budget. Um, Scotland is increasing the amount of the local council budgets that are um, allocated by participatory budgeting. 
Um, the other one that's really exciting is people's assemblies. And that, um, so what they are, okay, the big vision that we have at Coalition of Everyone is that the working day would be, needs to be rethought out to make a regenerative economy possible. We need to reallocate time so that people have time to engage in, apart from other things, democratic processes. And these could be happening on a local level on a practically on a weekly basis. So people can go along to people's assemblies just as they would go along to as as they would watch uh, their favorite soap opera or something like that um, to engage in political issues, knowing that they could be chosen to become a member of a legislature or a local council and have the real power. So they need to keep abreast of issues and things like that. So people's assemblies are informal deliberative processes where, which can be on anything and don't necessarily have decision-making power, but can feed into the citizens assembly processes. And then there's a lot of um, innovation about things like real-time voting, real-time interaction. And we've seen this, for example, um, with Jackie Lambie recently and the, her asking for feedback on whether or not asylum seekers should have mobile phones, which 97% of the people who responded um, disagreed with the proposed legislation and thought that asylum seekers should, of course, have access to mobile phones. Um, so that was just a really recent example of that. Um, if you want to find out more, please check out the Coalition of Everyone website, which is coalitionofeveryone.com. Join the Sortition Foundation. The Sortition Foundation website is sortitionfoundation.org. Contact your council, get them onto the deliberative path. And um, if you want to talk further, please feel free. Sarah Motta, Democracy Motherwise. I'm going to play a little bit today. Um, I was, I've been, um, I was participating in a, in a project to do with uh, the maternal and performance. And uh, I'm doing a lot of work on the politics of motherhood and a, and a politics motherwise for my next book. And there was a space in the Nina program when I do a lot about the relationship between politics and economics. And I thought, you know, let's play with democracy motherwise. Um, and I think one of the things that, and, and this comes from an ongoing collaboration with some sisters in Brazil. So Sandra um, is the key person that, and Claudiano who's not on this and Mila. And I wanna try and see you as I'm speaking. And um, it's really um, to, to, I think a preoccupation for me is that sometimes when we talk about like new economies, there's a, a separation reproduced between the political and the economic in the sense that it's assumed uh, that almost the structures of, of governance and polity and state can stay the same. And we can kind of change some economic policies or we can change some forms of producing producing um, and for me in the kinds of work I do with with women in movement often indigenous and black and and mestiza mixed uh, women in movement in the global south including in in Australia is that these two uh, are deeply interrelated and the possibilities of being able to construct an economy otherwise um, uh, which is kind of based on 
justice and healing justice work and restoration and, and plurality in its deepest sense of the word necessarily implies a shift in the relationships of power around authority, around um, political subjecthood, around what we understand citizenship to be, around what we understand sovereignty to be, which obviously is, is so central here in these lands if we're talking about new economies and, and new polities. So I want to play with this around this idea of otherwise but motherwise. And, and why I want to do that is because there's a group called Miles Kikriam and their hands that create and it's a, a women's collective which forms part of a settlement in Ceará, which is northeast Brazil, a settlement of the Movimiento Semtera and the Movimiento Semtera that many of you will know are, are the landless workers movement. And this is a, you know, a, a, a movement of the pause. And it's a movement that's made up of campesino, uh, like peasant, um, uh, indigenous strands of uh, culture and practices and subjects. And this particular cooperative, Maus Kikriam, um, are um, important to focus on, I think, because they take us to the space of social reproduction. So they take us to the space of what is wrong with the way that social reproduction, so the reproduction of life, education, health, care, housing, food, are, are organized currently and the violences and harms that are embodied within this. But it, they also take us to repro a reproduction otherwise. And interestingly, that is I think quite emergent in many movements who are politicizing um, the fault lines of current modes of economic and political and social life women and mothers and aunties and grandmothers are at the heart of this because I would argue and others argue this it's not like particularly unique to what I'm saying is the social reproduction is double-sided so on one hand in in kind of patriarchal capitalist coloniality it is the site of invisibilized labor often feminized feminized labor which is devalued um, and not seen as a site of value or of knowledge or of a capacity from which to organize but on the other side when it's politicized as these women are doing it can become a site of producing our communities in life nurturing ways as opposed to anti-life extractionist ways and so in order to get at this involves turning a lens towards the threads that are often invisibilized even within movement literatures even within discussions of kind of radical politics of what's happening in this construction of like you know these intimacies uh, these ecologies of intimacy right these ecologies of care and reciprocity and recognition and so that it's important to zoom in and center away from the margins of what we might understand to be what's important when thinking about the conditions of possibility and the realities of an economy otherwise um, and actually center these kinds of everyday practices and webs of, of, of reproducing life otherwise and that when we do this we see that there are emergent forms of, of ec economies 
but they're social economies and they're weaved around care and madre tierra, that country and community. And in many ways open up spaces and are constructed through other forms of making decisions, other forms of legitimacy, other forms of power that are recognized, other forms of knowledges that are recognized, which has been covered. I missed some of yours, Sonia, because I had to go for a little walk. So I got some of yours, but when I was listening to Liz, I could see there are many elements, right, that speak to practices in different places that we can pull out. So they emerge really on the fault lines of these extractive, I would say probably political economies. I haven't had time to review this. I did this in another context, but political economies, because I don't want to separate the political and the economic. And I do want to suggest that there needs to be fundamental shifts in both to enable these kind of uh, democracy motherwise that is deeply both economic, social and political. And so they kind of emerge on these fault lines of, of the sacrificial zones of people and places where in the context that they're in, you have huge um, agricultural agribusiness and you have fault lines of, you know, alliances of government, multinational, um, uh, military, protecting and supporting the agribusiness uh, who is deeply unregulated and then communities being dispossessed or losing their land or having their waterways poisoned or having the airways full of kind of chemicals that have been sprayed from the plains to make sure that you know you can grow rapidly in multiple times soy for example and um you know having their kids with skin eczema and breathing issues and having their ecologies um, harmed and so you have this fault line and you have resistances to this from these communities so these are deeply politicized forms they're forms that emerge through the experience of these harms of the way the contemporary political economy is organized and you can see in this picture this is a, a circle of remembering and this is a circle of remembering uh, the lives lost of their compañeros of their kin who because often these fault lines are deeply militarized deeply policed so the lives lost because of assassinations or because of massacres or because of um, illness as a result of these contaminations. Uh, and the, the lives lost in terms of country, in terms of Madre Tierra. And so you have an honoring, you have an honoring and a remembering. So in these practices of constructing, let's call it this democracy otherwise, uh, you have, an embrace of those territories of being in our emotions, in our embodiment that are often rendered illegitimate in hegemonic or dominant forms of political economy. So the, the story, grief as a collective political act, um, embodiment with spirit and land becomes a really legitimate form of knowledge, but also a legitimate way to weave other forms of connection through care. And, and this is important because this is, I think, very key in how we imagine and how we might embody these other possibilities. And to consider these kinds of processes, you can consider them as pedagogical processes of learning and unlearning processes. And as part of this, 
expanded democracy or politics otherwise, there is a, a politicization of social reproduction. So in this case, there's a politicization and a contestation of the production of food, of agriculture, away from agribusiness towards different traditions that weave in the multiple histories of the participants in the settlement and that are combined in kind of radical education projects around um, eco-ecology um, and that use radical methods of education and that mean that decisions around what is being produced and created are taken in a circular manner. So, it, you know, there's many complexities to this and it's very placed, this movement, but this particular cooperative. So it's taken in a kind of assembly manner and taken in consideration of responsibilities to Madre Tierra, responsibilities to each other. And there is kind of a distribution of labors, but there's a collectivization of mothering. What do I mean by that? So there's not just um, the production of, of the, the produce as separate from what happens in broader aspects of care. So there's also like collective forms of childcare yeah? and children become part of this radical political process and become part of these agricultural ecological learnings. Um, but also, um, I can't remember what I was going to say on the other thing. But fundamentally, this is about a redistribution of power and a recognition of the knowledges and the wisdoms that each participant brings. So there's often a space for like telling of those stories and for sharing and recounting knowledges of planting, right? Knowledges of seasons, knowledges of particular fruit or particular vegetables. And so this collective collectivization of motherhood is really what I'm using it to signify is not just the body of the mother. I also am talking about the non-maternal subject and what does it mean to co-construct an ethics of care that is both embodied and material in enabling us to reproduce our communities in healthy ways of embedded within well-being. As part of this, so there's the embodied, the emotional, the radical education, the politicization of social reproduction, new forms of democratic life, which are deeply economic, is the spiritual. So connection to Madre Tierra, connection to both indigenous and kind of hybrid forms of Catholicism and, and peasant um, cultural practice become really, really important. And this is often organized in this particular movement around a practice called Mystica. And I think I might be running out of time. So Mystica, and here you have a little altar and you have a remembrance altar at the front. And again, what you will have at the beginning and opening of any meeting, so a meeting like this, or um, a, a, a kind of more formal political meeting to talk about strategies between groups, you would have a representation of story and a representation of survivance and of dignity. And that might be uh, an enactment, a drama, that might be a song, that might be a poem. And often there is then an embrace, like a collective embrace. 
and that this is also viewed as, as really important in the creation of those ecologies of care and in the, and the, and in the sustainability in a, in a more radical sense than how it's often co-opted to, to the nurturance of, of these relationships together, of, of the complexity of ourselves as beings, right, in relationship. And here we see they're just having a meeting. So it's one of their meetings. So it's often circular. You can see it's often circular. When we talk about politics or decision-making, when we talk about education, there's also a disruption of those borders between functions. So, you know, the current way we organize society separates the political and the economic, or says it does, although they're deeply intertwined, separates education from life, separates politics from struggle and embodiment. So even just the fact you sit and you have discussions and you're outside often, or the radical education itself happens through the planting and the telling of story, right? And the remembrance and the meeting each other is itself part of this democracy motherwise. I think that that's enough. That's what I wanted to talk about really. The importance of um, foregrounding politics as struggle, politics as the affirmative of centering subjects who've been historically on the margin, so raced women, from the South um, and of centering uh, an approach that takes seriously the need to radically restructures, restructure power in all its manifestations and to embrace the complexity of our being otherwise together and how, and how useful it might be to name this a, a democracy otherwise. We've got plenty of time for a chat. We've got about half an hour, I think. Um, there's more, Bromman just popped up on my screen. Hi, Bromman. We've got half an hour, so I think if people want to uh, ask questions, there are a couple uh, that are already there in the chat and I can go back to them. Um, but yeah, just um, take your time. And if you've got anything that you want to ask, please, um, please pop them into the chat and I'll try and go through. I did have, there was an early question, if I can find it. Um, that was for you, Liz. There, there are a couple actually, and I and I realised because uh, the theme of this conference is work in progress, and the really great thing about hearing about Narara is that the work in progress that's actually uh, being put into practice there on the ground. So, uh, the first question is for Liz: Are people able to be uh, on more than one team, so overlapping between the circle as well as in the steering circle? Um, absolutely. If, if uh, in so far as there's double linking between two circles, then they actually have to be on more than one team if they're the link. Um, and uh, and there's, there's no constraint on how many circles you can be a part of. It just is, you know, a matter of how much time do you have. So, yep, there's no rules about that beyond the double linking one, which is, in fact, says you have to. There was also another question. Um, someone was curious about what kinds of innovation are happening in regard to land management at Narara. Um, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to answer that, but it, uh, there is, um, uh, we have uh, quite a commitment to the principles of permaculture, uh, which of course is an ongoing innovative process in that you, you, you need to 
pay close attention to what's going on, which can sometimes look like an innovation in itself. Um, we have a steam weeder. So one of the big kerfuffles in the group has been, you know, how do we manage the weeds, you know, and a very strong um, push from some people to uh, use Roundup and including uh, bush management people who say it's Roundup is targeted specifically at things inside the bush so you don't rip it out and create more problem. Uh, so as part of um, that, we've ended up uh, buying together a, um, a steam weeder. So it, uh, it, it's good for doing the sides of the roads and you can reach into the bush a little bit with it, but not very much. So that's basically a boiler on a trailer at the back of a truck. Um, I don't know if that counts as an innovation. And, um, and, and there's a sort of general interest in um, citizen, uh, what is it, community supported agriculture. Um, and we have um, also uh, greenhouses where we're doing experiments with different styles, or not so much styles of growing as mixtures in the soil. So it might not look too much like innovation to you, but we also have community gardens we haven't started yet because we're still building our houses. So the gardens will come later and we'll be working together in those gardens. So you might get a better answer in five years time or two years time. I might just mention, I guess it's not really a question, it was from Bronwyn and Bronwyn might even like to speak to this, but she uh, popped a question or just a comment in the chat um, addressed to Sonia about um, how uh, the Citizen, Citizens Assembly's Coalition of Everything, these are fabulous ideas and how can we get them into our schools, particularly at primary school uh, level, because she's already noticed that her children who are not yet 12 uh, um, have already expressed their loss of faith in democracy. And I, I know you responded in the chat, Sonia, but I just thought it might be something you want to chat to just quickly. Yeah, I, I, what we're trying to do, um, it's mainly here in Victoria that we're working at the moment, just because that's where we're, I'm based in particular, is we're trying to work with lower secondary schools to try to run citizens assemblies for primary schools um, because lower secondary is when kids are at most risk of disengaging with the formal education system. Um, so we're experimenting with doing that and we've got quite a few schools who are interested. We've got a lot more kids who are interested than we've got schools that are interested, to be honest. Um, uh, there's um, a few kids that were like, when are we going to be able to do this in our school? Um, but the schools have been partly because of the COVID response and things um, a little bit less um, quick on the uptake. Um, but we have got four or five that are um, interested and I really love to hear from anyone that's an educator and wants to try it out in schools that they're working with. Um, because I think it's a really good way of disrupting that tie between elections and democracy and kids act as great ambassadors for ideas, I feel. Thanks, Sonia. Um, we don't have any more questions in the chat, but I think um, given can I, can I, I'd be really interested to hear if anyone wants to comment on their their experience of other forms of participation and democracy, like, you know, or, or, or in their own lives and or, um, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear from you. It's kind of already odd, right, when we're on this <laughs> Thing and there's black screens and there's a few faces so I don't know if people felt like sharing anything about their own experiences with this kind of stuff even if it's different or none of it resonated what we were talking about 
I can see Eileen's got her hand up. <laughs> and it's for you, Sonia. I was just wondering, remember how a couple of federal elections ago we had parties, there were small independent parties where you could elect someone who would then represent your ideas? What were they called? And I don't know what happened to those two parties. And you could elect them electronically, a bit like you were saying, how, you know, for the. Can anyone remember what happened to those two parties? Or, they intrigued me, but then they never. No? I know no. there are still a couple of um, people looking at initiatives like that, and that there are some moves to get people together for the next um, general election, but I'm not sure um, what happened to the ones that were around then. They just disappeared. Just was wondering. They obviously didn't get elected. Weren't they in the Senate? Was it mainly in the Senate that they were trying to? Yes. Something, I think they were called something to do with direct democracy. That's right. Yeah. And you, were, and you, you presented your ideas electronically. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were going to try and do a tech element. Yeah, absolutely. There have been a couple of examples of those pop up in Senate um, federal elections, and I think maybe state, I'm not quite sure. Um, I suppose my, just um, speaking to Sarah's point of what experiences um, people have had, I suppose mine has been um, negative and that's what motivates, I suppose, perhaps a lot of us um, because out of the, the bad stuff, hopefully change comes and that's, Kind of um, what's there are a few kind of sayings uh, by I can't remember who <laughs> just at the moment because I didn't um, think I'd be speaking but um, having natural democracy in the household I've seen the disparity and I don't know if that's uh, something that the kids the comment about the kids already losing losing um, faith is that they can see the difference between what happens in the home when the home works well and people have a voice within the home about decision-making. And I suppose that's a cause for hope because in not all but in a lot of families, there hopefully is um, a fair speaking process and a fair way of making decisions to an extent um, and that perhaps can help people to be motivated to get that in a, in a bigger sense perhaps. Just thought I'd say that, throw that out there. <laughs> Yeah, well, that in the in these there's a lot of these movements. It starts with kinship relationships and 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 beyond heteronormative families. Of, you know, it's like extended families and then coming together to ensure survival. But then also remembering right and reclaiming wisdoms that have been denied, or you know, all the different processes that happen. And and for me, that's actually the way up and maybe we don't even want to go up like like that's the way across to networks so, you know like this whole thing of reimagining the very institutions of power and uh, you know I'm very mindful not to place a lot of allusion into dominant forms of governance and sovereignty and state um, so I actually think the hope's there and and that the 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 the, 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 the slippage is when liberalism becomes the way we think democracy is run, that we think liberal democracy in this nation state is the only way 
that we can organize power and sovereignty and authority and it's just that's a story do you know what I mean and it's not my it's not our story like in terms of the communities I work with and kin and stuff so I think also giving space for that to break that to break the idea that if it's this or it's nothing it's authoritarianism if it's not this that's rubbish there's loads of other forms of democratic life so I, I was just thinking uh, of a comment there based on uh, Jonathan Strauss made a comment in the chat there um, about the capitalist interests and wondering, Sarah, if you have any uh, any thoughts about separating property from uh, governance, as it were, because uh, in the case of liberalism, it's it all it's all about property. It's about rights attaching to what what you own, what you can control. Well, yeah, because there's been made, so this is a site, this movement, it's a site of struggle over land and sovereignty over land, control over, like taking land back. And it's other forms of property. I mean, in the sense it's collective, so they, they have fought to get legal recognition, so they're not always being invaded by the military and you know, the multinationals, because there's this loophole in the constitution. So they can be useful to push back on, but it's all about then, Come, more coming in common right and collective forms of both family but community I mean ownership's a weird word because it's not necessarily in the capitalist sense of ownership but um responsibility to um a, a particular country or a particular you know part of Madre Tierra so yeah property's massive right and property's so huge hit like here in the colonial capitalist heritage it's like property right mastery power you know like housing, like I've been having this experience of housing at the moment. I'm a single parent, I'm a race woman. Oh my God, the violences that get enacted if you are not a property owner and you don't even want to be like an individual. The assumptions about lack of right and about kind of lack of right to dignity and respect. So these fault lines of the heart, you know, social reproductive terrain, I think, and in Newcastle are mega because they're gentrifying and encouraging even more bloody private ownership and that in the intercies of everyday life, ordinary people are kind of being able to have mastery over others. So yeah, I think it's a mega, it's part, I think it's quite, yeah. And I think there's a danger if we think about democracy being captured by capitalist interests. I think that democracy was, the way that it is today was always about protecting capitalist interests. The elections were about protecting the ways in which people who already had access to the levers of power maintained that access over the levers of power. Um, so I think it's not just that they've been, it's been captured by um, big capital, it's that it was always meant to be um, an enabler of big capital. I thought it was really interesting uh, to hear earlier about the uh, enthusiasm that the people in uh, Narara are demonstrating, you know, they're volunteers, but they're so enthusiastic and committed because what has been built slowly over time is trust and that uh, we can see how uh, trust is used um, or lack of trust is used uh, to entrench power because, and, and the American elections have, have just sort of been such a demonstration of this happening because you've seen that I think I was fascinated to hear that, uh, you know, people that we thought were potentially good candidates for the Democrats uh, just couldn't afford to keep running because at some point you actually just run out of money and you have to withdraw from the race. So, um, so you can see how that 
how, as you say, it's being used there to entrench a type of capitalism. So um, that was interesting to me to think about the connection between that lack of trust and how we all become so cynical and that cynicism often leads to apathy then representative democracy, we're also removed from it and it doesn't work. So we lose confidence, we lose trust, and then we don't participate. Okay, um, anybody else got any questions or uh, people wanting to have a, a little bit extra time over lunch? We're happy to stay around a bit longer. Um, let me know. Okay. Thank you, everyone. I think it's been an amazing session and it was lovely to have a theme continue on from this morning. But I think we're all mindful that we're going to be doing a lot of Zooming over the next few days and it takes quite a lot of stamina. Um, so please, yes, go and enjoy some lunch and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, back in, in one of the sessions this afternoon. But thank you, Sarah. Thank you, uh, Thank you so much, Liz, and also Sonia. Uh, terrific presentations and, and definitely food for thought. And I think uh, a lot of this is about digesting and thinking about, um, about how we respond to these, and that can take a bit of time. So I'm certainly, I've got a few things that I'm going to be processing this afternoon, but I really enjoyed all of your sessions. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for sharing. Thank yeah. you.